0: Hello listeners, it's Ben, one half of your podcasting duo. Uh, This week's episode is a rewind. We are going to rerun uh, Season 2, Episode 10, covering open source software. And I believe there's also a discussion of the Google v. Oracle case in here. We're running this episode this week because we have a plan next week to talk about the upcoming Google v. Oracle case. Uh, Oral argument is set for the end of March, and so it is timely. So we're going to run this one now to reorient you in uh, sort of the ideas behind open source software, software licensing, and uh, a little bit of background on that case. So please enjoy and we'll be back to you with fresh new content soon. Welcome to
1: a Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with
0: your hosts Ben Siders and Kirk Damon.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by the IT consulting firm of William Lumberg & Associates. Founded in 1999, we are the region's preeminent testing procedure specification reporting experts. Just go ahead and give us a call. That would be great.
0: Welcome back to The Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. And the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGpod, and this information is coagulated on our webpage, www.lggpod.com. Podcast.com. Also, a shout out to our newest listeners at Burlingame. Is that it, Kirk? Burling- Burlingame. Burlingame Intermediate School. Burlingame Intermediate School. We see you, San Fran, and <laughs> welcome. Today's topic, Kirk, what are we talking about? Talking about open source software. Open source software. This episode will probably be a little tech heavy, but we're going to try to make it understandable and accessible to listeners who aren't well-versed in technology or perhaps even unthinkably find it boring. (laughs) If if you find
1: technology boring, why on earth are you listening to this podcast? Yeah, you may have
0: the wrong podcast. So (laughs) this is probably going to be a Ben-centric episode because I am a former open source developer uh, and I've dug into these issues a little more deeply. But um, as always, Kirk is here for uh, for at least color commentary. Belief. for nothing else. <laughs> let's talk about.
1: We, what, we unfortunately seem to have the giggles this episode, so just be forewarned.
0: Oh, I'm stuffed up, so I'm using. I'm using. This is an inside baseball trick. I'm using uh, laughter as an excuse to <laughs> to sniff without being caught. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about what open source is and why it matters. And to understand that, we have to establish a couple of basic things about you know computer software and how it works. And I assume if you're listening to this, you understand what <laughs> a <least> computer is, <laughs> what a computer is, and that it has software on it because you should be using software to listen to this. Podcast <laughs> of some form. Of some yes.
1: No. What you're using is a computer. Maybe another question entirely. You know, its yeah. a mobile device is that a, an actual sort of desktop computer? But
0: <laughs> it's important to understand. I think that so- software is a lot of things now, and a lot of things are software now, uh, even more so than even five or ten years ago. It's it really broadened up, and you know, the smartphone market has put computers literally in our pockets, and everything on there is also software. And you know, the differences between you know, it used to be, Craig. I'm sure you remember this. It used to be that like pocket devices. Were were little niche things with yeah. unique operating, you know, mobile operating systems that weren't really all that full featured. a lot of it originally, I mean, the the implementations of a lot of specialty devices was
1: hardware. I mean, you know, you talk about like old video game systems, I and mean, yeah. those were hardware. Those were not software driven. Um, and you know, we've moved more, we've moved more and more away from, I think devices which implement anything in specific hardware to now the general purpose devices that run it in software. I remember there's a, there's a famous quote by uh, some venture capitalist. I don't remember who it is, which is, what is it, software is eating the world or yeah. something along those lines. It is. <laughs> um, and I think it's a very accurate statement of you know what we're seeing. And the reason I think it's so interesting is what we're seeing is we're seeing a movement away from the idea of a single-purpose device. So the idea of a mechanical device, which is, hey, it's it's built to do this, to being a general-purpose device, which is programmed to do this. Yeah. And it may be programmed to only do a few simple things, um, but the answer to it is its hardware could physically do much more. We just don't want it to do that.
0: Yeah, I think the iPhone was probably the first, maybe the BlackBerry, but the first sort of wide-release commercially available you know, pocket computer that really was a pocket computer. We had pocket computers back in the yeah. 80s. A friend of mine had one. But I, all, all it really was was a basic interpreter. It didn't yeah. do much more than that. I had, I had a handspring uh, for those of yeah. you
1: may remember those things. I mean, that's the sort of competitor
0: to Palm. Yeah, and oh, yeah Palm OS was another one. But they're all sort of <laughs> stripped down, you know, not really general purpose computers. They were designed to do one thing, kind of the way an iPod was. You know, it yeah. had an, a, you know uh, some sort of operating and file system in it, but it was really just designed to do the one thing. Now with the iPhone, you have a general-purpose computing device in your pocket that can do whatever you want yeah. it to do. Just as an interesting anecdote, I think it's worth pointing out, You know, we, we love to throw on this reading, general-purpose
1: computing device. It's a term that actually, because we both work in patent yeah, law, patent we're both brand. sort of familiar with, um, it's actually a term that's used a lot in conjunction with patent law of general-purpose computing device for determining patentable subject matter. Um, so it's one of those things where, you know, we're talking about this and the idea behind it. It's not the subject of this episode, but it's worth pointing out that that's actually a legal term.
0: Yeah, we ought, we ought, we ought to consider doing an episode on that at some point, because the whole the, the whole concept of what is a general purpose computing device is fraught with misunderstanding uh, <laughs> 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 and, <problems. laughs> and problems. So, but that's uh, we'll, we'll, we'll file that in our whole other episode file uh, to understand open source. Have to understand what software is made of, and if you're not a developer, if you are, this will all be uh, sort of 2nd uh, nature to you, yeah. But if you're not, you know, when we, as a as a person who uses software, what you're accustomed to seeing is really what we call the the bit code or the machine code or an executable code. It's not really code in the in the same sense of like source code. It's a it's a set of binary instructions that are given to your computer's processor to tell it to do stuff. Yep. and your processor knows how to do this stuff it tells it to do and it's really boring stuff like move this bit <laughs> from this register to this register or this byte or or add these two numbers together it's really really low level stuff and i'm for those of you who are computer people i know right now you're rolling your eyes and screaming at your stereo and saying like, that's not exactly right i know i know we're simplifying <laughs> um so the machine code is not really human readable it's it's based on the, uh, the instructions that your particular processor knows how to interpret we also have something called object code which is kind of like machine code i won't quite get into the differences uh, and then you have source code, which is what we consider human readable. Yep. It's it's something that you could open up in an editor and look at it. And although you may not know what it does if you don't know the programming language it's written in, it at least looks like something structured and organized. It's got names. It's got words you probably recognize. There's some sort of evidence of a human intent to <laughs> impart instructions uh, if, in the source code. If you
1: jump back far enough, at least to sort of when I was in school, source code was what you wrote. I and don't it think is still, that's it's still
0: entirely to true anymore, just because there's yeah. now obviously you we, bring source yeah. codes in from other places. We but. write less and less source code now, even when doing original development, because a lot of the source code you have is, you know, if, if you're building an interface, you may use like a drag and drop uh, you know, a GUI builder to do it. Yeah. And it sort of generates the source code you need in the background. I'm old school, I don't write code that way. Give, <laughs> me, give me my Linux command line and my VI editor, and that's <laughs> how I do everything. I've never I've never moved on from that since like the nineties. For those so.
1: of you who don't know what a command line is is oh just go look
0: it up. Yeah, uh, just go- Google MS-DOS and and, and, <laughs> and, underst- and, then, and then get a warm blanket and prepare to cry. <laughs> and understand how we all had to learn computers. <laughs> I still prefer the command line in Linux, I don't know. Um, so, you know, when you get when you get a program that you buy, or really you're licensing it, we'll get into that in a second too, what you're really getting is the machine code. That's what you care about as the user, because that's what you run. So when you double-click the icon on your desktop, the, you know a copy of the program is loaded into your computer's memory, and something called a program counter points to the first line of the machine code, and it just starts going through, line by line, executing the code. And there's branching logic and other things, and, and that's, that's all you get. But you don't get the source code. You don't get the part that the programmers who work for the company actually sat down and typed into their keyboard. They usually keep that. It's considered a trade secret or confidential, uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that one is if you've got the source code, then you understand all the architecture and how they built their program. It makes it a lot easier to make a competing program. That's the real key. I
1: think one of the things to keep in mind about source code versus machine code versus object code, these types of things. For machine code, you can see, hey, this is you know, I know that that doing A causes B, but I don't necessarily know what the specific machine action is, which is going from A to B. And there may be multiple ways to actually implement that.
0: Yeah, the general structure and program logic is not usually easily discernible from the machine code. Even though, I guess in theory, if you had the, the instruction set for the processor, you could reverse engineer exactly what it's doing, but it's you know, I can't think of a good example of that, but it'd be kind of like taking a lot, you know, have you ever seen those games where they take a, a microscope and show you something at 65 times magnification and try and guess what it is? Yeah. It's like that, like, y- you you may get somewhere near the ballpark, it's green, it may be, it's something in nature, yeah. <laughs> but you're going to have no clue what you're looking at.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good example I think as to what it is, which is the fact that, you know, you're getting the general gist of this, but there's generally a lot of ways this could could be implemented in source code and quite frankly the, the uniqueness of different pieces of software you know why this thing runs in you know 8 milliseconds versus 10 milliseconds is the specific way that it has been written and a lot yep. of that is the what essentially they pay software developers for I mean yeah. if you're a good software developer that's what you're doing
0: yeah although a lot of that now is, is done at compile time It was a time yeah. where it was all about optimizing things when you're writing the code but anymore you just you know GCC-04 max, <laughs> maximum optimization <laughs> and you're all set GCC I should say G++ those of you who don't know what I'm talking about I'm sorry um, <laughs> there So may quite a bit of that during the course I'm, of this I'm, episode you know I, I promised myself I wouldn't get into all this stuff because I, I super He's geek out about. To. I know, I know. I will try to withhold. Uh, so I think I think another reason why companies often don't give out the source code is something called security through obscurity, which is where if there's bugs, <laughs> everybody has the source code, they're much easier to find. So yeah, um, you know, sometimes you just want to keep the source code uh, private because you don't want others poking holes at it, maybe saying, look how poorly this is implemented or how sloppily this is done, finding security problems. A lot so, of it potentially also
1: is, and I think when you talk about sort of not necessarily sloppily and things like that, a lot of software is built over time is built by multiple developers you're going to potentially be able to see hey this is where you know one developer ended and another developer began that can create both excess code you know things that you just don't need in the program anymore stuff like that but it also and I think the real key to this it can create security
0: holes that just nobody realized needed to be closed yep and, exactly. So that's one of the dangers. So, you know, when you get your software, you get the machine code, which is copyrighted. There's cases on that, that the machine code is copyrighted and owned by the company that uh, that makes the software. You don't usually get the source code, which is also separately copyrighted. Um, and this is a little bit like when we talked to, you know, last
1: time we talked about the idea of music licensing. This is kind of when you think about the idea of like mechanical license versus license in the sheet mm-hmm. the music, stuff like that. Same kind of idea in some yeah. respects.
0: And the, and so, and so, software's odd though, because it, it is copyrighted, there's no no question. It would have been ruling since the 70s, I think, software is copyrightable. I
1: think, yeah, but it's, it's definitely not that long ago just because there not yeah. been
0: software for that long. It's that weird, we think though. A we'll, bit. We should go into this at some point, not today, but there's an interesting set of cases on this and, and sort of emergence in the Copyright Act as to how this worked. Software is like a lot of things. It seems like every time that redo the Copyright Act, the entire world reorganizes itself <laughs> about, about five years later. So we have the 1976 Copyright Act. Then we had the VCR and the software explosion and all this other stuff that they could have dealt with in but, the act had they done it ten years later well one of the best examples is if you're going to simply register software for copyright you're required to submit
1: the code but you don't have to submit all of it they recognize it's yeah. long but you have to submit the first and the last 50 lines if I remember correctly or 250 lines what is nobody first and writes last that way anymore
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, when, you used, when you had one file that had all the code in it then okay sure but but nowadays like you know, a, a sophisticated software program may have uh, an enormous amount of files you could have hundreds and hundreds of different files yeah. what's the quote unquote first file is it where the main function starts, like in a language like Java, that's meaningless.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's a real thing. But again, this still is the law. I mean, this is yeah, how you to submit copyright for, for software, how you have to submit it. And it is, it's a bit of a problem because it's it's associated with, and again, I, I remember when we learned programming, you know, on Apple IIe's and stuff along those lines, where, you know, you're typing in basic and you're numbering the lines of code. I mean, yeah. those of the key things you had to do is number the lines so it knew what order to execute them in. So if you realized you forgot something, you could add it at the end, but you numbered it. so it fit You the always meta. numbered
0: by tens, remember, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> in the case you had to insert a line in between yep. it would become line 15 you eventually hit a problem where you had to put in so much code that it didn't actually fit you had to renumber everything yeah, you had a 15 to 16 yeah. and it's wait a minute I can't do this there's a reason virtually no other language requires line numbering <laughs> Uh, but co- copyright is in, in some ways I think a weird fit for software just because the way that the rights you get with a copyright are written kind of contemplate – because com- software is considered a literary work. Yep. Kind of oddly, although that's probably the best fit of the categories of things yeah, you can it's, copyright. I can't say it's a work of visual art. I yeah. mean I sculpting ex- here. It, ex- it tells a story I guess in a sense. Um, but so let's go over the main the main copyright rights. One, the right to make copies. Duh. Yep. Uh, two, the right to publicly distribute, perform, or display. And then three, the right to prepare derivative works. Yeah, and again, no, this isn't all of them. This is just sort of the main ones. The one, the main ones that would apply to software. Yeah, yep. there's others like sound recording rights. We're not aren't relevant. Um, of these, probably the the copyright. Copyright is the most important <laughs> of the copyrights uh, because when you when you privately run your software, you're obviously not going to be publicly displaying or performing it. Um, and you know most users aren't creating derivative works of the software itself. Self, yes. Yeah. Now that's probably a bigger concern for the company that owns the copyright. They don't want people making new derivative works, and and legally you can't. That's not to say somebody wouldn't, but um, they're, they're, they there should be okay there, but. The copying is where the problem comes in because every time you run the program, you make a copy. The machine will load a copy of the the code into memory to run it, which technically means every time you run a program that you don't have a license to, you infringe the copyright. Because you make a new copy, that's kind of a scary thought,
1: there, isn't it? It really it, is. You know, every time you turn your computer on, you potentially infringe a copyright if you're running off software that isn't licensed. Um, and the reason why I just comment that's kind of a scary concept. I don't know if we got into it particularly in the show, but the idea of statutory copyright um, violations, you can actually be found liable for copyright infringement, and they can charge you
0: damages based upon simply the number of infringements you have. Performed. Yeah. How many copies have you made? Yeah. If you even if you, in this case, you turn the computer off or you shut the program down, and then you delete the copy from memory. You know, five minutes. Later, yeah, you still made a copy. You still made a copy. There's, there's no, there's no defense of yeah, but I got rid of it. <laughs> you
1: could have made a thousand copies, even though you have none of them remaining. Yeah, um, and that's a, it's a really intriguing concept. Again, I think when it comes to software, because so much of copyright sort of assumed that the copy lingered. Yeah, which really doesn't exist in conjunction with these things in computers, and it's it's simply memory allocation. What kind of the memory is being used? Yeah. How the program is being carried around? Why this happens?
0: Was well, you have virtual memory? It could get copied more. So I run a program. It loads into RAM, and then it swaps it out to virtual memory. To load something else, so yep. I made a copy in a RAM, a copy back to the disk, a copy back to RAM. So running it once, I could make a number of copies. Yep,
1: and that's—I think—that's a little bit of sort of where the, some of the weirdness of software does come in. Because when we think about running a program, or we think about, hey, I'm going to you know turn this video game on, we're not thinking about the fact that the video game is running five different times. Yeah. We're thinking about it and saying, no, we're running it. It's just running one. You're
0: just thinking, I've only got one copy, and I've never made more. But yeah. but you have. <laughs>
1: yeah, and so and I think it's just worth keeping in mind that in the back of your mind in this is that when we're talking about things that are going on in the computer, unless you're, you know, diehard tech person that's playing around a lot with computers, you don't necessarily realize what your computer is doing when it's running well, the software. I mean, you
0: are. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a techie, and I don't think about this stuff every yep. time I run the program. Some
1: people do that because, I mean, Some they're dealing do. with they're the people who are programming virtual memory and things along yeah. those lines, so they have
0: to think through these issues. Well, but, the, way, the way you get around this is, you know, obviously the copyright owner is the only person who can make copies, so yep. what, what gives you the right? And it's not because you paid for it. That is not what gives you the, <laughs> the right. It is because they've, you've been granted a License. that's what you paid for that uh, yeah we have to, really what you're paying for is to get the license but you don't have to be paid you can be granted a license for free if somebody's willing to do that then you can do whatever the license says if you ever read a software license it usually says something like you have the right to run you know to install one copy on one computer and run it yeah. and they have to say that because otherwise I have the right to install one copy but so what when I run it they got to make a second copy yeah, exactly. so more uh, not not all licenses are written properly in my opinion I've read a lot of them that don't actually ever say you can install and run, <laughs> which I think technically means if we're being very literal, you don't actually have the right to execute the program because uh, that would be infringing the copyright. Yeah. Nobody said you can make more copies. Just install the one. Although, again, I think what you bump into in a lot of this is the, the
1: sort of assumption that you know these license agreements are long and complicated yeah. enough as it is. Courts are not going to necessarily say, hey, because you left something out for simplicity that everybody knew this was yeah, what was you're, intended.
0: Yeah, you're going to win that argument. And, and, and as a practical matter, the, the copyright holder is never going to enforce that, right? If they start <laughs> people that, yeah, you paid for a copy, but you don't actually get to use it. I mean, yeah, unjust enrichment. There's a lot of— <laughs> Yeah,
1: there's, there's going to be some legal ramifications fraud. coming back. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah
0: there, there's a lot lot of false advertising. Like, there's—you there's, know, that's not going to happen. But we're being very technical here because this is a technical area of the law. Uh, in effect the license is really conceptually an affirmative defense. If you ever defend a copyright infringement lawsuit, uh, license or implied license is one of the defenses you raise. Uh, and you know because but for the license what you're doing is a copyright infringement. Correct, but the yeah. license from the copyright holder says but I'm going to let you do it anyway. Yep, and that's actually I think it's important to
1: keep in mind. That it's one of these things that a lot of people look at and they say, "Oh, well, what I'm doing is okay." There, there's something in conjunction with, and something you, you definitely learn in law school and you pick up uh, repeatedly is the concept of what you are doing is allowed versus what you are doing is a defense mm-hmm. are two very different things. And the way I sometimes describe it is, it's you know, I didn't kill someone is not breaking the law. Self defense is a defense. Yeah, it's still saying you did it, but I'm okay. What I did does not comprise a violation of. Yeah. Law.
0: Yeah, an affirmative defense basically is an, a tacit acknowledgement that uh, the plaintiff in the lawsuit could prove facts that would show that you violated whatever the law in question is. Yes. But there's a there's a public policy reason why you nevertheless should not be held accountable for that. Self-defense is one of the big ones. If yeah. someone's coming after you with a knife, I don't have to stand there and take it. You know, I can fight back. Yeah. You know, even if I wind up hurting them, I've still committed a battery. It's just excused.
1: Yeah, and, and I use that one as the example because I think that's sort of the best one. And because particularly the phrase is self-defense, so we're yeah. talking about a defense. Um, and, you know, the, the law gets into these issues a lot. And it's an area where I think it's one of those things that gets glossed over a lot by the law and media mm-hmm. of the difference between a defense versus not violating the law. Like fair
0: use. We'll get into that later too. Yep. It's one of the most widely mis- it's not, a, it's not a copyright. It's fair use. No, it's still copyrighted. No, it's still copyright And still an infringement. It's just also a fair use. All three things are true at the same time. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and, and again, it's this difference that basically says, one of them says, I literally did not violate the law. The law says yeah. I cannot do A and I did not do A. The, the second one is the law says I cannot do A, I say I did do A, but my ju- doing of A was justified for another reason yeah. under the law.
0: Well, and par- lawyers confuse this, and this may also just be because of how the procedural rules work, but you know, when someone asserts copyright infringement, you're usually going to assert an affirmative defense of ineligible subject matter, that what you yeah. claim to have copyrighted is not actually copyrighted at all. But that's not a defense, really. That's, that's more just yeah. saying that, that's more of a judge from the pleadings thing, right? Like, you can't actually assert this because you don't own the copyright, so we should just win. Yep. But those facts all have to be kind of sussed out in discovery, so you, you can't actually win at that point. So we tend to just list a bunch of affirmative defenses, and we include in there things that are not technically affirmative defenses. Yeah, and part of it's also, I think, just because of the nature of the way it's a back and forth. And yeah, you the procedural papers, nature. You, yeah.
1: you have to assert your responses back as affirmative defenses, because that's kind of what the papers require you to do, even though some of the things you may be asserting back are technically not affirmative defenses.
0: Yeah, and, and what, what, what happens in practice is you know, the judge gets all the evidence on this, we submit all of it, and then decide all all at once. So yep. even though you may have all kinds of evidence that it's not actually copyrightable, if the evidence is not overwhelming, they're generally going to let the lawsuit proceed regardless to a conclusion. The judge is going to wait and see who wins and then decide whether it's copyrightable or not. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and that's it's one of those things again. I think you know when when you're looking at a lot of what you see in popular media, what you see you know reported on the news and stuff like that. It's something we've gotten into this in, into into the show repeatedly in conjunction with. There is a lot of nuance here, and I very I, I joke about it. Is it's you know you get a lot of the comments of why people hate lawyers, and the answer to it is is because their answer to every legal question is maybe. Maybe. And my argument back is that's the only appropriate answer to every legal question is maybe. But the the reason why I. Think Think you you get into it is that a lot of times the answer is long and um, answer is
0: usually more nuanced than p- what people want to hear. Yeah,
1: it's more nuanced than what the people want to hear. It's it also is one of the things that oftentimes annoys me about when I like see talking heads on TV and things like that. We're yeah. Like, but th- it's so simple to understand, and I'm like, as soon
0: as you say it's simple, you know, yeah, you're wrong. Or let me
1: explain <laughs> it to you in a simple way. Right? What you're really saying is, let me explain it to you in a wrong yeah. way.
0: Uh, let me ignore all the nuance and just give you easy talking points yeah. that, that are easily digestible. And I mean, and we've done that on this show too. You know, we and have we we to. We're going to have to that, for this yeah, episode
1: where we try to say, hey, let's simple simplify things to the extent we can one of the things to keep in mind is that when we're saying we're simplifying things we tr- we are getting rid of some of the nuance there's always the possibility that the way the nuances play out you could end up with the opposite conclusion you could yeah. end up with opposite facts even though from the the same simplification you get to the same point um, and that's an important thing to keep in mind yeah. and I think for this episode in particular it's worth pointing out there is a lot of nuance in this area.
0: That's exactly the direction we're heading, because we're going to talk about a pending case before the Supreme Court right now, uh, Google v. Oracle, that implicates some of these uh, licensing questions. And uh, we're going to greatly, greatly oversimplify it (laughs) um, for the point of making it understandable. Uh, But yeah, there's a lot that goes into that and a lot of the sort of commentary about that case um, is is based upon a misunderstanding of, of how the legal system works and what the ruling actually is. And there are specific facts in that case that if they were slightly different, it could come out very differently, yeah. I, I think it's it's interesting. I think and I think that you know if
1: you listen to podcasts regularly, I think a lot of podcasts that get into other complicated subjects, you know, economics, mm-hmm. um, you know, stuff related to you know, uh, like sociology, kind sort of more scientific areas. The, Everything that does this, in some sense, has to simplify because the underlying material is So complicated, complicated so And, dense. you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where we can look at it and we can say, hey, you know, for us to explain Google v. Oracle on a podcast, we can tell you, well, just go read all the pleadings. But, I mean, you're talking tens of thousands yeah. of pages of of evidence, which you're not going to do. And so the, the concept with it is, is to the extent we can simplify it into something that you can listen to in 20 minutes – you know we have to simplify. We literally couldn't read into evidence. You know
0: half the documents <laughs> in the time. You know a third of the documents in time. So going back to the license, you know the copyright owner gives you the license, and they get to decide what you can and cannot do with the software. They usually give you, like I said, the machine code, and they give you some other stuff that goes with it. Uh, they're not going to give you the source code usually. Very rare that you get that. Yep. And then and then the license itself defines what you can do, and and that allows for things like price discrimination. So if you buy a corporate license to run a, a particular piece of software, it probably costs three to four times as much as the home version, even though it has all the, the same basic functionality, but the scope of what you can do with it is broader. You yep. can access it remotely or you can install it on five machines instead of just one or, or things like that. For
1: those of you who are, are sort of really not versed in computer stuff, this is where you things like Enterprise Edition, you may hear yeah. those kind of things. A big one I always like to sort of pick off is like, is the Microsoft products, you'll see Professional Edition versus Home Edition. Mm-hmm. You know, That's a lot of what this is. It's variations in the license. The software is not necessarily Really that different. Now, yeah. a lot of cases, it is somewhat different to the functionality that That's Microsoft's a good
0: example. You can buy like the professional, or used to be able to buy the professional edition of Office just off the shelf at like a Best Buy or something. <laughs> Back when you bought software yeah. off a shelf. But that just had like a shrink wrap EULA in it, you know, or, or a click wrap. Uh, and the rights you get for that version of Microsoft Office Professional were different than if you bought through like a corporate bulk licensing deal. You pay more for the bulk license, but you, uh, you get more rights that come with yep. it because you're buying more stuff from them. So, you know, the exact same software, the exact Exact same version could still have different rights under different licenses. Yep, and and again,
1: the other thing I want to just point out is one of the things that's key to think about this when you think about buying software. And again, you know, we come from a world where buying software meant you went down to Best Buy and you bought a box off the mm. shelf that had CDs in it. That's obviously or not floppy what you discs. do. discs. <laughs> that's obviously not what you do anymore. Now it's a download type of procedure. You're going to you know get it from an app store or something along those lines. But you're not getting source code. And that's a real key sort of, I think, to keep in mind with this. You are not buying source code at this point in time. You're buying effectively machine code or something along very similar to that, where you don't have that underlying
0: material. Yep. So this is where open source comes in. Uh, there's actually two concepts here, and they're related, but not 100% overlapping. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so you have free software and open source software. Yep. And these two are two different sort of groups of, of licensing models for software, uh, and we'll kind of go into each one. So let's start with free software. Free software is, and I'm going to editorialize slightly here, a sort of quasi-philosophical movement about you know, quote unquote, software ethics and the ethical use of of software and copyrights. And this movement was started by a guy named Richard Stallman, I think in the 1990s, uh, based on this idea that users of software, again, users, not the people who actually write and create software, but the people who get use the it. software, should be able to safely run, adapt and redistribute. And by adapt, I mean change and redistribute the software without any legal restraints. Uh, and so he founded something called the Free Software Foundation to provide these, these freedoms. Uh, and I won't go into what they are because they're, they're sort of detailed and have to do with uh, you know, how you modify and distribute software. That is different from open source. Open source grew out of the free software movement uh, and was sort of a, the idea that we, we like the ideas behind free software and the sort of portability and open nature of it. But the sort of quasi-philosophical elements are turning people off and are, you know in a lot of senses, commercially unworkable, which is inhibiting the adoption of open source. So why don't we I think broaden you, the net?
1: One thing I think important to put, we say commercially unworkable, commercially unworkable within a capitalist society and i think that's a sort of you know sort of key component in conjunction with this is the idea that when we're talking about a lot of the concepts of this free software and what we really say is free software It really is this idea that the end user is given affirmative rights regardless of what the creator wants the rights to be. The open source movement I think sort of looks at it and says there's some value in giving the users those rights, but at the same time we want to make sure that the creator has some control still over them. So I think that's where you kind of look at it and say is it's in some sense copyright says the the, the creator has all the rights. The free software movement sort of says the user has all the rights, um, or at least a Fine package of rights which can never be altered. Yeah. The open source movement kind of trying to strikes in the middle and says there's benefits of both sides.
0: Yeah. Well, let we go through the freedoms real quick. So under the free software model, and this is this is the GNU General Public License or GPL, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, you know, Mr. Stallman basically did not like the way that the copyright regime worked and had what, what's really kind of a brilliant idea. Let's turn it on its head. Let's use the copyright to undo the copyright. Effectively, you know? yes which is why they call it copy left which i which is a sort of a typical bad developer pun <laughs> it's,
1: it is a total pun of a pun recognizing that it's the right has nothing to do with right yeah. versus left he's got the wrong right <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's, the,
0: it's the, the the right right not the left right um so so there's four four freedoms which are are in, in true developer fashion labeled freedom 0 through 3 which is, is a joke <laughs> yeah, that exactly. only developers will get so one is a freedom to run the program for any purpose and that's an important distinction because you normally pretty much always have the right to run the program but he's saying for any so this would both eliminate attempts to restrict, you know, why you can use it, and like academic licenses and things yep. like that. Uh, the freedom to study how the program works and change it so it will do what you want. Yep. This uh, would be creative, creating derivative works and modifying the functionality. Uh, the third freedom, freedom two, is <laughs> the freedom to redistribute copies so that you can help your neighbor. So you get to give away copies uh, without charging people if you don't want to. And the, the fourth freedom, freedom three, is the freedom to distribute your modified versions uh, to others. Yep. And you know, copyright would not normally allow any of this unless the author gave you permission because it requires the right to create derivative works yep. and to publicly distribute copies and copies of the modifications, which you otherwise not only couldn't make but wouldn't own if you did. Yep.
1: Yeah, and this this is make that, I think, very clear. Copyright that you would deny all of these freedoms. There's there's nothing underneath you that copyright lets you do.
0: What GPL says is me as the author, I'm going to issue this license which says none of that's true. Yeah. Uh, If you're getting my source code, you get to do all these things. Also, you are prohibited from using this source code in any way with another project or product which takes away any of the freedoms that I've given you. Which is where the viral licensing thing comes in and sort of the misconception that if you ever use open source with proprietary code, you have to open source the whole thing. Not always true. For the GPL, generally true, but it's only if you exercise these freedoms. If you're just going to use it internally and you modify the code and run it for your own purposes, you don't have to do anything because you're not denying anybody else any of those rights. It's once you distribute the source Code to somebody else. All these things trigger, and you have to open source everything. Now, for a commercial company, obviously, if you're not distributing the software, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, as a practical matter, GPL is often unworkable with a, with a commercial enterprise. Not always, but, and but again, frequently. I want to just focus on a little bit and just want
1: to point out the fact of how this works. What we have here is we have copyright saying you have none of these freedoms. What you then have is a license agreement saying, as the original author, the copyright holder, who de- can, has the right to deny yeah. you all these freedoms. And gets to am, pick the conditions. And gets to pick the conditions. I am affirmatively granting you the right to do these, but part of that grant of right is that you cannot take that right from anybody else. Exactly right. And so, you know, it, there's an, it, it's essentially a double negative, and I think that's the sort of best way to think about
0: this is to admit. it is. It makes is. it very confusing, like to yeah. try to administer legally.
1: And the other, the other thing about it is, is ultimately the enforcement mechanism for or how you enforce violations of this license, that somebody has been granted these rights, now denies them to another person, is ultimately the underlying copyright, yeah. which denies them in the first place.
0: Yeah, you'd say, one, you've breached the license, you don't have the right to use the software, yep. so you would either seek an injunction from a court ordering you to open source everything, or, if, if you're going to refuse to comply with that, you don't have a license, and guess what? Now you're infringing, you're infringing. my copyright.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and so it's a very, I think that's the, one of the key things to keep in mind, is that when we talk about it, particularly again free software you know the, the 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 GNU license what we've really got here is we've got copyright law being used to enforce the non-enforcement of copyright law
0: yeah it's it's really bizarre, and that that's where sort of the quasi philosophical element comes in. That there's a belief that software needs to work this way for for ethical reasons. Yeah. I've never I'll also th-
1: just comment generally as as a lawyer. This is an extremely interesting legal scenario, which I mean, this is not the only place this kind of thing occurs. Just to keep that in mind. No, but
0: it's it's particularly strange here, and it, it's it's caused a lot of trouble because the licenses, if they were written by lawyers. I, I like to know who they are because they do not read, like, licenses written by lawyers. And when I read, like, GPL2, uh, to, to quote Nego Montoya, I don't think it means what you think it means. Uh, when, when, when I read it— You didn't get
1: that reference. It's, it's, you're too young.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's Princess Bride. I don't think it means what they think it means. I, I've, I've read through it, and the language is, is not nearly as clear uh, as, as it should be. And attempts in GPL3 to make it more clear, I think, have made it less clear. Yeah. So— I, I'm guessing Stallman or somebody in the, in the uh, Free Software Foundation wrote these. I can tell because the clauses are numbered like a programmer would number it. There's not a section one. It starts in section zero. Yep. Only a developer would be that pedantic. <laughs> I, I, I can smell my own, so I can say that. Right? Um, but yeah, and I sh- we also point out that free does not mean free as in price. You can still charge people to distribute your programs that you write using open source. But you also, if you distribute it, have to give them the source code itself for free. Yep. Yeah, and so I think that
1: uh, again, it's you've got this, and again, what we want to talk about when we're talking about this sort of free software. And again, we've we've used open source
0: as a term here a couple times. I think a lot of people do use colloquially. Free it's as used a broadly to capture source, everything, yeah. but really, there's free software. Open source is broader and does not have the same concept of you also have to impose the same conditions that I'm imposing to everybody else. Yes. So the license is where I say I'm going to open source my software for anybody to use in any way they want, no strings attached. To me, that's true software freedom. But in the free Software Foundation, you're also, by not restricting people downstream, you're enabling them to deny the same rights you gave them to others. Open source takes a step back and says, I don't care, do whatever you want, including use it, close source, resell it, don't give it, don't share it, whatever you want to do.
1: Yeah. and, And that's, I think, one of the things that is very interesting. And I think it's just something to keep in mind. When we talk about the idea of truly free software, if truly free software exists, it's called public domain and and public domain software you can do anything you like with you are truly free to do anything you want with the point of it is is that one of those freedoms is to deny the freedom yeah. to do other to do that same thing to other people which is the one freedom they're trying yeah. to deny in conjunction with free.
0: I think it's one of the reasons that the free software foundation has sort of created this, this schism within the open source community is the, the sort of the, the, the marriage to this philosophical element uh, has driven a lot of people away and turned them off as we're, you know, we're saying in order to preserve your freedoms, I must take them away from you. Like yeah. it has a sort of, uh, I don't know, Orwellian, <laughs> it does a bit of an Orwellian, you know, when, when you, when you, when you're not making anything commercial, you don't care because you know all this free stuff and it's awesome. But yeah. Um, So, yeah, so that, that's sort of the difference between the open source and the proprietary stuff. And there's a lot of different open source licensing models. And this is where I find lawyers in particular get really confused because we say things in open source like, oh, it's the MIT license. It's the Berkeley license. Yeah. It's the Apache license. And lawyers are like, wait a minute. How, how is MIT involved yeah. you know, like, well they're not that's just what it's called it's yeah. very confusing let's talk about that Kirk you know some of these right I, I definitely know a few of them I mean MIT licenses definitely when you
1: bounce out there you know BSD Apache you know Mozilla they're yeah. all ones you hear thrown out there you know regularly I mean one I always remember is Antler um, oh yeah and-
0: yeah, so unlike proprietary software, where each company will usually write its own license, right? So Microsoft writes the Microsoft license, yep. and IBM writes an IBM license. If you go to
1: that About Windows t- tab at the you know, sort of under the Help thing, there's an About Windows tab. You can actually access your license agreement. Yep, that license agreement was written by Microsoft. It was not written and yeah, for you
0: know, for this specific product yeah. that you're licensing. Open source is different. The open source products and modules are licensed under sort of a template license that was previously written by somebody else for some other unrelated purpose, yep. but, they, but they're but they really generic terms, and the developer liked those terms, so they're borrowing them. Yeah, and
1: generally it's written, a lot of the associations like Mozilla, as a perfect example, the Mozilla license is based because it's how Mozilla was licensed. Yeah. That's where the license term originally came from. It's sort of like saying, hey, I'm licensing you this proprietary software under the Microsoft license, because I cut and pasted the Windows, Microsoft yeah. Windows license into another piece of software. Yeah. It's just when you're talking about people who intend to keep proprietary rights, that's not
0: done. Yeah, and, and it wouldn't work for Microsoft, because Microsoft's license is going to Say, this is the license to Windows 10. You exactly. can and cannot do the following things. You have to change at least Windows 10, right? Uh, plus, query whether there's a copyright in the license itself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which we can get into later is the, the copyright in legal documents. So you'll sometimes hear references to like the MIT license. It's because at some point MIT open sourced a bunch of stuff under a license and it said copyright MIT. And so now we just say it's the MIT license. We just mean it's under the same terms that MIT originally licensed yeah. its open source source software, but MIT is not involved in any way in what, what we're licensing. Yeah. And part of the reason I think you also bump into these things with it is
1: because most of these sort of you know open source licenses, the license itself is also open source and public. Yep. So therefore you can simply say, hey, I like the terms of the way this license works, it is written generically, it's not written for a particular piece of software. So if you like the terms, you can simply use the license. It also makes it a convenient shorthand. Everything which is the MIT license technically is the same license agreement. Mm-hmm. So anything which, if a court interprets an element of the MIT license, all things subject to the MIT license would be interpreted the same way. You
0: see this in transactional work a lot too, where you're, where a company's buying software assets or copyright assets, and there will usually be something in the, in, the, in the asset purchase agreement that says, there's either no open source software, or if there is, we're gonna list it on a schedule. But all anybody really wants to know is are you using GPL software or yes. not? And it's a nice shorthand for lawyers to say, no, it's all MIT, BSD, Apache, and fine, nobody nobody cares. Yep. Uh, as soon as you say GPL, then there's a whole separate phone call you need to have to talk about. <laughs> yep. And and that's the sort I think
1: it's an interesting thing to sort of talk about when we say this. There really are two licenses here, GPL and everybody else. else. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there's some fuzzy ones that are that, that have, you know, if you're gonna modify the code, they impose some things. And I think like like Pearl's artistic license is as much as our criticize the GPL for being sort of badly written. The artistic license is also <laughs> very vague in some respects. Yep. And there's also differences. I think the Apache license has like a, a patent license included. The rest of them do not. Yep. So if the software is patented, uh, then you know the license doesn't get you around that. It, it gets you the copyright to the source code, but does not cover any patents. So. A few
1: of the ones I think to also keep in mind, this is also where Creative Commons come in. This comes in. i yeah. have encountered Creative Commons licenses. Creative which run the gamut. Yeah, which run the gamut. In many respects, Creative Commons licenses were trying to take what I think the defaults of the MIT license, the BST license, all these other other licenses and formalize them in one form that says, okay, if I want these, if I want my license to be this, this is how we set up the terms yeah. that's what this license is and it, they made these sort of generic statements okay if you want it to be that you can use it in the third world country but not in the first world country for free here's how we're going to do that mm-hmm. and that's you universally accept this term which is designed to be universal so you, you kind of have that falling into here too where you have all these sort of separate licenses that, that I think were first in some respects yeah. that sort of came out and became more popular you then have Creative Commons trying to go in and say hey let's make these more universal let's clean
0: it up yeah and clean
1: it up and all at the same time unfortunately that got kind of stuck on top of another licensing scheme which was already accepted so what you have in many respects is you have a very large number of possible licenses that something is yeah. licensed under but what you also again I think you have to keep in mind when we're talking about it most of these licenses are fairly similar
0: yeah, at least at least in, in intent, uh, the, the GPL licenses are the most unusual because yep. they have this viral licensing aspect. Uh, most of the rest are, are, are generally the same. MIT and BSD are, are all but interchangeable. It's really about the warranties, disclaimers, and they just still, they still have conditions apply. Like you still have to include a copy of the license yep. and a copyright notice. You just don't have to open source everything you include it with. Yep.
1: And that's I think one of the key things about this. And we talk about viral, um, and it's you know for those of you who used to you know sort of obviously like the viral being used. This YouTube videos going viral, something along those lines. In some sense, this is, I think, probably where that term kind of came from is in conjunction with some of this viral licensing. The concept behind viral licensing as to what it is is that essentially once the license attaches, it, it attaches to everything it touches. It truly is yeah. like a virus. It passes with everything that it touches. Um, and the, the truly viral nature is kind of unique to GPL. Um, and that's where when we say this is kind of this quasi-philosophical type feeling... In many respects, that's what we're talking about is that nature of saying, once you've accepted this, you cannot avoid it. A lot of these other licenses have the, we're going to tell you that you have to accept this, but at the same time, you can avoid doing it in the future. GPL has this sort of purpose intent of it being no you can't avoid it in the future and that's that's a lot of the reason why GPL gets talked about differently is that viral nature
0: as, as a practical matter free software is it's it's free as in freedom but it really becomes free as in beer as they used to say <laughs> because once you can get the source code there's often no reason to, to pay for the actual software itself yep. and successful open source companies like Red Hat Fedora I assume they're still around uh, you know Ubuntu they, they make money elsewhere because the distribution are, all, are yeah. all free. There's no reason to pay Now,
1: interestingly, them. there are some places where I think, and it's something you're starting to see, I think even more and more today in software, we're seeing stuff like um, the concept of um, sort of micropayments and sort of improved software mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, you're definitely seeing a little bit more of the idea that you, you can pay somebody a small amount to get something easier. So there's definitely systems out there where it's, yes, you can access this data via an open source license, via something along those lines, but that may take you an hour and you need to have some basic knowledge of computers versus you can simply pay us a dollar and we'll give you exactly what you want. Yep. Um, you know, those are the kind of things where that you, you do see a bit of that now, and I think that's a little bit of sort of what, quite frankly, I think that's a little bit of what GPL intended of the idea is saying, yeah, you can make it easier for somebody, and somebody can quite willingly pay you for doing making it easier, so long as the hard way is always still available.
0: Yep, yep. Well, Let's talk about Google v. Oracle because this case um, involves open source software, although the real legal issues aren't about open source specifically. Nevertheless, people are concerned that there will be serious implications for open source. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't heard of this case, uh, you're going to put Oracle aside. Really, it's Sun uh, because Sun is the company that uh, came up with Java in the early 90s and then later sold it off to Oracle. So Oracle is sort of what we call the successor and in interest to Sun. Uh, the case is really about the Java API, and I guess I have to explain what an API is. It's short for Application Programming Interface, which is a fancy way of saying the names of the functions in the programming language. Yeah. And so let's explain what the functions are. When you write software, you often find yourself repeating the same code over and over. So let's say I'm going to read somebody's, somebody's going to type something in from the keyboard, and I need to listen for the keyboard to have a key get pushed and then once the computer tells me hey they pushed a key tell me what key it was i don't want to rewrite that code every time somebody pushes a key it's not possible so you've just got a collection of logic that listens for a keyboard press and then does something with whatever data we get off the keyboard same with the mouse click or anything else So these are called, in in my day, it was called a function, which is an old math term. Now they're called methods, but it's all the same thing. It's sort of a prepackaged set of instructions that do the same thing. Often you have to give it information. So I may have uh, a method that's called when I get a a line, you know, someone types something into the keyboard and hits enter, that whole line is given to me exactly what they typed in. That's the input to my function. And then my function will do something uh, with that, maybe display it on the screen or print it or something.
1: Now keep in mind when we talk about this, if we talk about like a programming language, languages, effectively this is every programming language all the way back every to basics, yeah. stuff like that if you're writing anything but machine code which is where you're physically telling it how to move bits around yeah. you're you're using these functions these methods whatever you want yeah, called subroutines or yeah, something like that you know it's what it is so this is in some sense the the, the core of a computer language
0: yeah and uh, you know the, and then there's you know the actual code itself that you know for, for what it does so you know if I want to read something off the network I'm probably going to have a, a function called read or network read or read from the network or whatever you want to call it whatever you want. You could just call it X. It doesn't matter what it's called. Uh, usually you want it to be something that's, people remember. that clues you into what it does, but that's about readability more than copyrightability. Uh, so Java ha- is a programming language that has a rich set of pre-written code that does a lot of the stuff that you want to do so that when you're writing the programs, you don't have to redo all that stuff. It already knows how to listen for the keyboard presses. You don't have to do that. It already knows how to display a button and listen for a button to get clicked and things like that. And uh, over time, developers who use Java a lot get to know what those functions are called. Uh, they don't know exactly how they're implemented behind the scenes. They yeah. don't care. They just know what they do. Uh, and so you can you learn to write code really quickly because you don't have to look up uh, what these is called the API call or the signature. Yeah. You know what what the name of the function is and what what parameters to pass to it.
1: I want to just quickly jump on sort of a thing for for these of you guys who may be hardware people, and a good way to sort of think about this, you know, when you're using like a chip that's provided to you, and it'll tell you what the pins do. So it'll say, okay, this pin is an addition function, you know, stuff yeah. like that. In some sense, the, the API is like explaining what the pins do. Yeah. You don't know how the chip do not care what the circuitry is underneath them, what what it's doing. But you know that if I take this pin and this pin, it will add the two, you know, signals that yeah. are coming in on these pins. So that's it's the same kind of idea in, in software as we can say if in hardware as to what this. Thing thing is it's to enable you to not need to know what's in the black box in order to make the black box work you just, just know what it's know called what you put in and what yep. you get out
0: so uh, when google was designing uh, android uh, well they bought android from somebody else but uh, as they were you know, getting that up to speed to compete with the iphone they wanted to use Java, uh, which is a language that a lot of developers already knew, which would you know make it easier to to find people and and get you know, recruit talent. Uh, at the time, Java was um, open sourced, but the API itself was not. So, although you could you know get the Java compilers and all those kind of things, the API itself was not open sourced. So, uh, Google went to Sun and said, uh, we want to use uh, We want to use this, and since the open source license won't work for what we want, uh, we need to, to get a license to the, uh, th- there's more to it than this, I'm simplifying greatly for those of you who know on the inside, but basically, Google needed a commercial license, the open source license was not going yeah, to be they sufficient. They couldn't get the standard of the available license, it yeah. was available to everyone, yeah. they needed a specific There's a, the short version is an open software development kit that would not work, they wanted the standard edition. So, uh, the negotiations fell apart, and there are competing reasons about why, Our According to Google, Sun wanted to exercise too much control over how the Android uh, ecosystem was going to work. According to Oracle, Google just wanted to make a non-compatible Java virtual machine that would basically fork off Android by itself so it would not be compatible with the rest of Java. I don't know who's right. It's not really relevant. It's, it's, it's relevant to no.
1: the fact that this is what they're fighting about in connection yeah. with the court. That's what they're fighting like that, about. And
0: actually, I take that back. It may be relevant to how the court looks at this. Although, when I look at like the official Federal Circuit decisions, they're basically adopting Google's explanation that, that Sun wanted too much control over this. So that's what's in the actual case opinion. If you look at the Wikipedia summary, eh, different story emerges. <laughs> of course, who wrote the Wikipedia summary might have something to do with that. Yeah, I didn't check, so I don't know. At any event, uh, they reached an impasse and Google decided to, quote, do Java anyway and defend its decision, perhaps making enemies along the way, end quote. Uh, That quote appears in the case decision. So Google copied verbatim the entire declaring code of 37 of Java's API packages, which is a total of 11,500 lines of code. In the grand scheme of Java, not that much. In the grand scheme of the API, it's 100% of these 37 uh, API uh, definitions. But then Google rewrote the actual implementation So they kept the names, but rewrote how it works themselves. But it still did the same thing. Did the same thing. And Google basically argued that the API itself is not copyrightable, which is something developers, uh, in my experience, have long believed anyway. Although I think it's a sort of industry mythology, I have put copyright notices in my header files since 1994. So I don't know why people think that, but they do. So in 2014, uh, a federal court of appeals confirmed that the API is, in fact, copyrightable. There's a lot of complicated legal doctrines involved, a lot of which we talked about on this show, but we'll go through a couple. One is the difference between a copyright in the literal elements and what they call the structure sequence and organization, or SSO. So the literal elements, Kirk, is literally what appears on the screen, the names of the methods. Yep, yeah, That's I mean, we're talking about physical, literal yeah. text. So math dot like maximum or math.cosine, something yeah. like that. The the sequence structure and organization is the particular selection, inclusion, and ordering of those methods. How did you organize them into this, it's sort of a taxonomy. You know, there's a java.lang.math.cosine, dot 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 java.lang.display.whatever. Yep. Dot 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 so yeah, they had to organize and select how we were going to, to group these functions together into related functionality. In a way that's going to be easy for developers to remember, in a way that makes sense, so that functionality of that similar nature is grouped together. You know, math is easy, right? I yeah. mean, if it's math, it's math. But in other areas, it's more confusing. You know, do I want to have my my you know buffered readers be part of my network code, but I can read buffered data from a file too? So to have a generic buffered reader and then a network version, and a file version that branches off of that, or a different version within my file and my network packages. There's a lot of decisions to make here. Uh, I've tried designing stuff like this before. It's hard because uh, there's always two ways to do everything. yep. so <coughs> Google more like fifteen, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, a lot more. So you know there's a question about and and and, whether or not the literal elements the names of the methods would be copyrightable the particular way that you've organized them also could be copyrightable separate and apart from the methods Uh, there's also the question of short words and phrases not normally copyrightable and most of these things are short words and phrases we're not talking about particularly
1: long statements these are not really even sentences in many respects they're collections of four or five words probably at the longest math dot maximum yeah they're put together in a particular way to mean something and sometimes you can kind of look at it and say it's not a full word it's the word without Vowels removed. We all know what the word is. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, When we see it on a vanity plate, we know what it's referring
0: to most of the time. But, uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's still not the word. <laughs> there's also something called the merger doctrine, which goes back to the idea expression dichotomy, which we talked about before, which is basically the expression can be copyrighted, but the idea cannot. Yep. The merger doctrine says that for some things, if there's only one way to say it or really only a couple of ways to say it. The idea and the expression basically merge together and are the same thing. Yep. And the final one is uh, sans Affair, which we've talked about, which is, you know, if, if, if there's only so many ways to express things, then things that you have to include to express it yep. are not part of the copyright. Generally,
1: if you're writing a murder mystery, somebody has to die. Yeah. So you can't say yeah. that somebody dying is copyrightable. Yeah. If I'm
0: drawing a bear, it's going to look like a bear. And the yeah. things that make it look like a bear, two eyes and O's and ears, <laughs> not, not part of, I'm not infringing a copyright because it has those things in common. Yep. Uh, Google basically argued interoperability. They said that, um, you know, in order for interoperability between multiple platforms, and systems, uh, they had to be able to reuse the API because this practice is done all the time in open source. When you know uh, Linux is a good example, Linux copied the entire Unix API for uh, its uh, its system calls. Um, but uh, the, the court didn't find that convincing because interoperability is irrelevant to whether it's copyrightable. Yep. It may have to do with whether Google infringed the copyright or not. Affirmative it,
1: defense. Remember yes. when we started there
0: but nothing to do with whether it is in fact copyrightable. So, the Federal Circuit held that the API is copyrightable, but sent the case back for another trial on whether Google infringed the copyright by copying what it copied. That case then came out in Google's favor, went back to the federal circuit, uh, unfair use. Uh, again, arguing mostly interoperability, uh, and I think Google also threw in some, some, but we still don't think it's copyrightable arguments. Uh, the federal circuit reversed in favor of Oracle and it held that as a matter of law, what Google did was not a fair use. Kirk. How yep. many appellate decisions are you aware of holding that fair use does not exist as a matter of law? Very, very few. There aren't many. <laughs> this uh, might be one of a handful. I, I think that's probably why Google was pretty excited to get the ruling that they got. Um, this is pretty rare. Fair use is very fact intensive as an analysis, and it's 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 pretty unusual. So this is. Um, I'm not saying it's it's necessarily wrong, and it's not unheard of either. But certainly it raised some eyebrows.
1: Yeah, and, and it is. It's th- This is a, a, we're talking about sort of legal effect here and the thing sort of with this. It's not how this case came down, this is yeah. what they found. It's how they found it. Um, and again, it's a ruling of a matter of law basically says it does not matter what the underlying facts are, the
0: outcome must be this way. Well, sort of. I, I would disagree slightly. I okay. would say, based on the factual record at trial... This is us uh, being nuanced. Yeah. The, based, on, based on the facts at trial, those facts, as yes. a matter of law, do not constitute a fair use. There could be additional facts, even in this case, that were not part of the record that could make it a fair use, but they weren't but introduced, to, introduced trial. to trial. But uh, so so
1: they're not introduced trial. So yeah, they're not relevant. So yeah, it, they're
0: saying, under these facts, as a matter of law, yeah. not a fair use. What this court
1: can take into its consideration, there is no way we can find a fair use. And yeah. the only thing we can take into consideration is what we've been told in the court. This is getting a little bit into sort yeah. of the nuance basically of basically saying the jury should have never
0: gotten this case. Yeah. The judge should have ruled it as a matter of law based on the factual record once Google concluded its defense. Yep. Uh, so that's what happened. The case is now up on appeal to the Supreme Court, which has not yet agreed that it will accept the case. Uh, it's generally believed in the industry that they will. I don't 100% understand yeah, and, um, why. I don't think
1: this is necessarily certain. I think there. There's a good reason that you can see them wanting to take this because this yeah. is a major issue and it involves a lot of things related to
0: computer programming. I should say, we're recording on May 1, 2019. So as of Monday, the... Um, the court had asked the government, asked, they ordered, uh, ordered the government to uh, the Solicitor General's <laughs> office to outline the government's position in this case. So the court has conferenced on this, have not yet made a decision, and presumably they're going to wait until they get the SG's uh, thoughts on this before they decide whether to take the case or not. But um, there's some concern in the open source community that if the decision stands, it's going to kill off open source software because what you often do in open source is just duplicate existing uh, APIs, uh, which you know has, has been done a lot. And, and the, the biggest example of that is probably the Linux operating system, which was basically copying the API of the Unix operating system, which is now owned by Microfocus. So there, are, people are worried that Microfocus may start enforcing uh, this API against uh, Linux, which Which is everywhere. Yeah. I think that's actually a a little bit of an overblown concern because. you know, not to get too far into the weeds but basically the interface itself the API is not actually owned by Microfocus I don't think I believe POSIX uh, it's called POSIX is the name of the API this was developed by uh, IEEE an organization Kirk uh, knows well <laughs> and an organization called the Open Group which is devoted to developing open vendor neutral standards for interoperability yep. uh, and that's also what IEEE does is develop standards for interoperability and a lot of other what's called standard
1: setting organizations which are essentially organizations that develop specific- Specific standards. There are actually specific rules related to standard-setting yep. organizations, where people who participate in standard-setting organizations. This can be something which is proprietary, but there's requirements if you bring something proprietary to a standard-setting organization, which is then placed in the standard. There are literal requirements on how it can be enforced. The thing that's really interesting about standard-setting organizations, just to know, there are attorneys who specialize in standard-setting yep. organizations. It's a very specialized area of law and a very important area of law that's out there. It's called FRAND. FRAND. Uh,
0: yep. Well, it's not free. It's- it. It's uh, um, fair, 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 reasonable, reasonable and non-discriminatory. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the terms have to be. You can't just pick and choose people yep. who get the stuff and who doesn't. You have to give it to everybody. Yeah. And a lot of these charge things, For it,
1: but it's got to yep. be. We fake. encounter these things on a regular basis. Probably the most well-known standard-setting organization, Fran-type thing, is Bluetooth.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you know, we all use that. But if you you can actually go, you can get online. There are very specific requirements of here's how you use Bluetooth. Here's how you can use it. Here's how you can specify that you are using it. You know, sort of things like that. That's all set by a standard-setting organization. Now, the interesting thing about it is we can look at the Free Software Foundation, GPL licensing. That is also a standard-setting organization in many respects. That's Oracle what they've is. done. This,
0: you know, what, what is the Java yeah. standard? What comports with this and just, you know, what know does not?
1: Java is kind of one of those terms you can see thrown around. Have a license. Java license is a license mm-hmm. you used to see thrown around a lot. You don't see thrown around nearly as much anymore. But if, all of these things behind this is basically saying, and what standard-setting organizations are trying to do is saying, we want to create something which is industry-neutral. And effectively, it's usually a recognition and usually people who generate these is there's five or six large players in an industry mm-hmm. who look at it and say we can all develop our proprietary standards to do this but the reality of it is that will hurt all of us yeah so we're going to all sit down we're going to develop what we think is the best one regardless of who we are, and then we're all going to agree to use it. And this by is where agreeing f- to use it, the Sony can talk to the Panasonic.
0: Exactly. This is where the, I was going to say, this is where the format wars come from, where you've got one person who's like, no, our way is better, and they just yes. refuse to cooperate. Uh, and then it's a matter of who's going to win in the marketplace beyond that. Yep. Um, yeah, so so the POSIX standard is owned by IEEE jointly with the Open Group. Both are standard-setting organizations. Neither is going to go enforce the license at the expense of one vendor in favor of another. I just Think that's going to happen? Yeah, so. unless
1: they truly can say somebody is violating it as a standard.
0: Yeah, in which case that's what they're there for. We would want that, I yeah. think. So, um, so that's uh, it's we're an interesting case. We're going to keep our eye on it and see what happens with it. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of fear in the open source community, and we were kind of talking on the way over here, and it kind of leads into maybe our next episode. Um, you know, the the sort of the the, the pithy um, uh, summaries you see of these cases on your your major tech journals are mostly not written by lawyers, mostly not written by people who understand the cases. Even I read some AP summaries of what the holdings were um, and those summaries are often uh, really overly broad this is you know th- the case has not held so far at least that that every API is copyrightable it's held that this API yeah. is copyrightable well, and
1: it's not even that this API is copyrightable
0: and what was done was an infringement yeah. and not fair use it is entirely possible somebody else could do something very similar but slightly different and not infringe yep. the copyright so, and I think
1: that's where we really want to get into and let's, let's sort of spin us around where we started in conjunction with this nuance yeah And I think that's the big thing we really want to talk about in in conjunction with this is a good place to potentially end our discussion of this case. This is a very nuanced case, and it's something to keep in mind when you hear or you read something about this case, which is saying it's going to have this impact in a broad area. That may or may not be true. The issue is what the holding is and what the nuance of those holdings are. A lot of court cases, there's definitely court cases that are out there which sort of acknowledge this is something which, you know, in this case is an infringement, is not an infringement. But effectively, and you'll hear the phrase used in law school, you can't even see a court use it, is limited to its facts. Yeah. And effectively what they're saying is in this particular unique fact situation, the law says this. We recognize that in every other fact situation that may not be true, but in this fact situation it is. Um, The example of one I love to pick on, and I'll actually just pick on it, is... um, a, a particular doctrine in conjunction with patents, um, which has to do with the the relationship between double patenting, between design patents and utility patents, which I'm not going to get into. But in the rules, it specifically states that there is such a prohibition and such a rejection can be made. But the rule itself recognizes, while possible in theory, in practicality, it could basically never occur. Mm-hmm. So it acknowledges that, yes, theoretically, this infringement does exist, but Even the rule acknowledges they can't come up with a fact situation that would meet the requirement.
0: Well, and I think think what may be relevant here is that first point where I said uh, we don't really know which one's true and it's not relevant as far as who's at fault for the license negotiations falling apart. Regardless of who's at fault, I wonder if the outcome here wasn't motivated by the fact that Google went to Sun, asked for a license, couldn't get terms, and basically said, well, we're just going to do it anyway then. Yeah. I mean, from the court, I'm like, well, then you thought you needed a license, so how come all of a sudden now you're saying you didn't? Yeah, and that's th- th- there is some sort of uniqueness in it, and again, I think this is, again,
1: we're talking about nuance, what are the particular facts in this situation? That is a fact, which you know shows up in conjunction with this, which may influence it, which is if you thought you needed a license and now you say you don't, why did you think you needed it in the first place? Well, and there's some, you know?
0: there's some some pretty damning internal correspondence I've seen bandied about on, online too. So yep. Google around for that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but yeah, Google, Google around for, for Google's <laughs> internal correspondence. So that's like
1: saying look for the leaks for WikiLeaks. I mean, come on. Well, it's not leaked. It's just part of the court case, but <laughs> I've seen see people I mean. quoting. I
0: haven't looked at the record <laughs> of, so I don't know, you know what the context of it is. But there's some statements that don't look good for Google, I'm <laughs> sad to say. I'm, I'm a, I'm, I, I make fun of them a lot on our podcast, but I, I use Google stuff. I love Google. But, um, they, uh, <laughs> they uh, did call out
1: San Francisco at the beginning of this, so you better be careful about, you know, say on Google too much.
0: Oh, we love Google. <laughs> we love everybody. All right. Uh, well, there's the music, and it's time to go we have a lot more uh, topics to cover here but uh, that being said our next episode is uh, a little up in the air we're thinking we might do a mailbag day might do like a movie TV recap episode uh, we've got Captain Marvel to talk about I finally saw Infinity War yesterday uh, and then Game of Thrones is going on uh, episode 3 just uh, finished up uh, so we'll see we're also talking on the way over but maybe doing sort of an episode focusing on the way that the law is used or portrayed in popular media um, I think we're
1: definitely looking at the idea of this being something as a media episode and, and not sort of a, one of these yeah, you know, this is a die-hard legal tech episode. Yeah, I think we're we're, gonna, we're gonna actually be a little more lighthearted and sort of getting a little more into, hey, let's look at sort of some law interacting with media, with general things, stuff like that, and maybe even a
0: true media. Yeah, we episode. had a lot to cram into this one. We didn't get halfway through it. So <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, that's that's coming up. We haven't 100% decided yet, but we'll uh, we'll figure that out and we'll we'll tweet out what we're gonna do. Uh, So you can check out our website, uh, www.lggpodcast.com. It has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes and get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. Subscribe to this podcast on the platforms and give us a review. That helps us find new listeners like our new friends in San Francisco. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out.
1: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice, LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios
0: in St. Louis, Missouri.